Listener supported. WNYC Studios. That's been one of the, the hardest things to really heal from, has been the grief of knowing that my choices and the way that I live my life, which I love, means that I am isolated from my community. What is identity? A name? Gender? Culture? A job? (laughs) Webster's Dictionary defines identity as the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. I'm Helga Davis. Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz is a radio producer, host, and one of the founding members of On Being with Krista Tippett. During our conversation, Liliana and I grappled with the idea of identity and its many intersections. We spoke about her relationship to faith, to her work, and to herself. This is my conversation with Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz. Oh, wow. Hi. Hi. I was thinking about you this morning. Well, I've been thinking about you for longer than this morning, but I was thinking about you for this particular reason. And one of my rituals is to go out and walk every morning, Mm. whatever time I wake up. And usually I have to wait for a bit of sun because we don't know who's outside all the time. Very true. You know, it's a reality for, for, you know, all of us who identify as women. It's so true. And so I usually wait till there's a bit of sun. I get dressed and I go. And I began to walk. And I got to the park. But the whole way, really, the wind, you cannot imagine the wind. And I'm not a person, I don't listen to the weather before I go outside. I don't want all that information. I want the I experience. I don't want that app that tells you when the bus is coming. Mm-hmm. I, I want my experience with time, with the world, and with myself to be a thing. Yeah, you want to be present. I want to be present. Yeah. And so what it meant for me was that I actually had to brace myself against a parked car. Mm-hmm. And it was so fascinating to see all the the people hanging on to bags, to telephones, to hats, to wigs, to the hands of children. I'm picturing like a storybook. It's all these pages of all the people holding on to themselves and each other. Yeah. But it was the kids who, as usual, had the lesson. Hmm. And I remembered this Toni Morrison quote. If you surrender to the wind, you can ride it. Hmm. And I watched this little kid unzip her jacket, and she pried her hand away from her dad's hand, and she opened her arms to the wind. That's so beautiful. Wow. And it's such a huge lesson and such a huge metaphor for how I want to be in what I do. Yeah. I'm so glad you were able to witness that. And so I'm asking you to share with me a moment of surrender for you. You know, I grew up in a very conservative Christian family. My dad is an evangelical pastor. I don't know if that's how he would call himself, to be honest. But now 
being older and having been an adult in the United States, I, I realized that really it's evangelical Christianity that we're talking about. But he influenced, you know, that, that journey of faith for me so much and, and the way in which I grew up. And it took a long time for me to come to understand what my own definition of spirituality was mm-hmm. and what does God mean to me and what are the things that I value in a relationship with God? Like so many questions. And so what came to my mind when you were talking, Helga, about that moment of surrender was uh, something that will seem so silly to many people, but was a real moment of surrendering to my definition of faith. I was a sophomore in college, and I had discovered in high school the music of Bruce Springsteen and had become uh, just such a devoted fan of his. And he had just released the album The Rising after September 11th. And he was doing this epic tour, which people had described as being this real space of healing, you know. And so much of it, I think, was the intention behind that album and the songs that he wrote. And I knew, like, I, I need to go to my first Bruce show, and it has to be during this tour. Right? So I save up all my money. And a girlfriend of mine whose mother loves Bruce was like, well, we'll do it. So we showed up there thinking that everything was fine. And they're like, oh, yeah, your, your tickets aren't valid. You have to get in line and get general admission tickets. So I started sobbing. <laughs> it's like probably one of the most public displays of, of crying that I've ever done. It was so embarrassing, but I couldn't stop. My girlfriend was trying to comfort me. Her mom was trying to comfort me. And they were like, it's going to be okay. We're going we're gonna to figure this out. <laughs> we're still going to see Bruce. Um, we get our general admission tickets, but he started playing while we were in line. And um, finally we get in and he's playing Waiting on a Sunny Day, which for anyone who knows that album knows that song, that it's actually all about the sun coming through mm-hmm. on a day that feels hopeless. And so we get up there and we walk all the way up to join, you know, the general admission crowd. And I started praying and I said, God, this is embarrassing. (laughs) This needs to stop. So just help me to stop crying so that I can just be present and enjoy what I've been looking forward to for, you know, six years. And as soon as I did, I feel a tap on my shoulder and a gentleman is there next to me. And at first, I, as a woman, I was kind of freaked out. I'm like, what's going on? And then this guy says, like, do you want to get closer? And he holds out his wrist and he has, like, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band paraphernalia. And he has this whole thing on his chest. He has, like, all the kind of official tour labels. Turns out that he's, like, part of their crew. And he has been tasked by Bruce to bring people from, like, way, way back and bring them to the front. And I had read about this for years that Bruce would always do this. But I never thought it would be me. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he brought us all the way downstairs to right in front of the stage, whereas I'll never forget, Bruce is sliding down <laughs> as we walk up to that stage. And then I'm standing in front of Clarence Clements wow. playing the saxophone. And I think the reason that that moment represents what you were describing is that it was the first time that I thought, oh, my definition of faith matters. And I do have a connection to God. And it's okay that it doesn't look like everyone else's. And it's okay that it may not even be my parents' faith, right? But this is this is me, and this is important. It was that kind of affirmation that I was looking for, that if I just believe in that and let it go, it's going to be answered. It's just, it's not a small thing. I know. Isn't it funny when I look back on that, I know now that it's not a small thing. But at the time, I was kind of embarrassed. And that's the thing, the memory, the feeling that comes from the memory is like such embarrassment for crying for that. I mean, that is not a person that I normally am. 
Describe a little bit the person you normally are or the way you see yourself. Mm. I've been thinking about this a lot. One of the things I've been noticing is it's really hard for me to cry alone. Mm. And one of the places that I go to to cry is actually the movie theaters. And I think so much of that is because I grew up in a family where, you know, we didn't talk about hard things. We didn't demonstrate emotion. And so I think that as a little girl, I always grew up thinking that feelings were something that I had to hold internally inside. And moments of crying in public, like that's just something you don't do. And as I started to, you know, get older and then go into the professional world, that's also what I saw, you know, not only modeled from the women that I admired and mentored me, but that's what I was told, right? It's like, to be a woman in in a male-dominated workplace, you know, not only that, but to be a, like a Latina, there's a way in which you have to show up and professional. And so professional always meant no feelings, mm. <laughs> right? Like when I worked in a newsroom, you go to the bathroom and you cry by yourself. But you don't bring that into the workplace because people will judge you and they'll think less of you. And I think that this pandemic has shown me how how deeply I've internalized that. You know, checking the box of Latina, um, it felt like someone was taking something from me. Mm. And I have to say, I have the privilege and luxury of being a white Latina. So, I mean, I go into spaces and people don't even know, right, that I'm an immigrant, that I'm Colombian, like all these things, right? And I know the privilege that, that my black and brown, like Latinx friends don't have with that. And yet every time I would check that box, I felt like, you don't get to own that part of me. That's mine. I don't feel comfortable with you using my identity as part of your demographic, you know. And, and that was just my reaction when I was really young. But now part of how I feel is almost like there are parts of me that I want to share at work and there are parts of me that I don't. And so the idea of bringing my whole self to work to me feels dangerous. But I think a big part of it is, too, is that I want to choose who I share all of me with. And work has never been that place for me. Work has always been, how can I be of service? And how can I get shit done? <laughs> but the whole of me, I reserve for the people that I feel safe with, the people that I feel have earned it, right? Mm. And that I can be vulnerable with and not have to worry because we love each other and that's always present. And I just feel like that's such a big ask of a workplace. I have a question for you that I've been dying to ask, ask. you, but I don't want to derail you. No, come. <laughs> I actually think it was either in the Jacqueline Woodson or maybe it was the Elizabeth Alexander conversation. You mentioned in one of them being really cognizant of like the young person in you, but you were so precise in a way that was so helpful for me in representing a feeling and really saying that's like the young in me or that's the young person in me. It almost felt like you were carrying like the little girl in you into that moment. And I just was like, I want to hear more about that. It can be really hard, particularly if you've had a difficult childhood to bring your young self into any moment. Now that you're an adult, you know, there's a part of me that constantly is like, nope, not not going to think about it, not going to go there, like, you know, we're here but now. But that right there is, is actually the issue. So in that place, I think where we push away these parts of ourselves, we run into trouble because there's a reason that they're presenting themselves in a particular moment. 
Hmm. I I spent a lot of time alone because my brothers were so much older and Hmm. my mom, who I still think of her as a nurse, even though she's been retired for so many years, wasn't a nurse then. She was going to nursing school. Hmm. And so I was on my own a lot. And that meant, too, that there was this huge space for my imagination. Yeah. And so when I think about being a young person, a young Helga, I think about someone whose imagination is active and alive and present in a very particular way. And that Mm. that young person didn't learn to need other people for her comfort, for her pleasure, and for her curiosity. She also was very lonely and very angry for being left alone and feeling alone. Yeah. And didn't have many people around who who recognized her. Hmm. That's one of my mother's famous quotes about me. She said she looked at me and she said, what kind of child is this? Wow. So she didn't recognize me. Yeah. And I didn't fall into the way she imagined a daughter or a two-year-old or a four-year-old. And so part of my healing, Mm. I think, is to stay in touch with her Mm. and let her know that I see her, that I respect her, that I love her, and that I'm willing to allow her out to play. Hmm. I love the way you said that. I, I, I'm realizing that now and realizing the importance of not just bringing, you know, my my little girl self into into the moment, but also in in playing with her. I love the way you said that and in really um, loving her. Yeah. I relate to so much of what you said. I was as you were saying what your mother said about you. I was like, oh, my mother said the same thing, except in Spanish. <laughs> How do you say it in Spanish? <laughs> Yo no entiendo de dónde saliste. Where'd you come from? <laughs> I'm Terrence McKnight. Join me for a new season of the podcast where people tell stories about the classical music that shaped their lives. I'm Tom Hiddleston. My name is Natalie Joachim. I'm Marin Alsop, and you're listening to the Open Ears Project. You're going to meet some incredible people and maybe, like them, fall in love with a piece of music. The Open Ears Project. Listen wherever you get podcasts. And that's your language, Mm -hmm. but in your body, in the experience of, of yourself, and you hear that in Spanish, and if you don't laugh, what do you feel? Well, I mean, if I don't laugh, I cry all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the relationship with my mother has been some one that has been so um, informative for me. As an adult, as a child, it was incredibly difficult. And what you were describing about loneliness is so true. I was lucky enough to have a brother who, although he's five years older, he was he was everything to me. He really parented me. And yet, you know, he was five years older, and he was having a different experience of our our family and and of life and. Um, you know, he came to this country a lot older than I was. I came in right about, you know, 
a year before entering kindergarten, but I was right in to the school system. He came in already being educated in Colombia and, you know, missing his neighborhood, his friends, his community. And, you know, his struggle was was really, really deep and profound um, in acclimating to the United States. And so he was going through his own stuff, you know, and I learned um, to turn to books. I mean, books were my my imagination, as you were describing they were my family. They were my friends. I mean, I would go into a book and lose myself. And that was one of the things my mother would always be like, oh, my God, another book? You're just constantly reading. Like, what's going on? You know, she could never get me away from reading books. It was like that door in Narnia. It was like I was able to open up that closet and go into an entirely different world. What do you think, if you can remember, your relationship with God was at that time? Mm-hmm. Uh, very much parental, you know? He was a parent to me. I would pray to him as if I was talking to my mother or my father, or I should say the mother and father that I didn't have. And so for me, I think that's one of the reasons why I will always have faith. Um, The language is Christianity just because that's what I've been um, raised in. You know, Jesus feels really familiar to me. Um, I was lucky enough to have parents who really saw Jesus as like a radical kind of, not quite a communist, but kind of, um, you know, so it was a very different view of of Jesus in particular. But can you say a little bit about what what that was, what the definition was, what your understanding was? Yeah. I mean, so I think my parents, you know, converted to to Protestant Christianity in the 70s in Colombia and on a college campus through an organization that was American, actually, um, Campus Crusade for Christ, which is to my understanding, I think it's on a lot of college campuses in the U.S. And at the time, they had sent these Spanish-speaking missionaries to um, to the university that my parents were in, in Medellin. And, you know, they were both Catholic. They grew up Catholic. And my dad famously tells a story that the week that he encountered these folks and ultimately, you know, um, became born again was the same week that he was going to be a leader in the Marxist party there, in, in like the kind of student Marxist party. He says that what he saw at the time was that the Marxist party that he was joining was just as corrupt as the Catholic Church that he had been a part of. And he saw in, in these folks who were kind of preaching a different form of Jesus and a different form of Christianity, what he actually idealized in Marxism, which was a, kind of an equality for all people. Um, Jesus as a radical figure for those who suffer. Um, and so I think that that's really what they, they raised me and my brother in was this idea of Jesus as provider, as a sanctuary, as a person who, um, fights for justice, you know, and, and was such a radical figure in, in his time. And, you know, that separation of Jesus from God was always really present to me. And so when I prayed, I prayed to God and it was always God as father. It was always God as provider, um, and kind of that parental figure. And he was a loving God in my mind as a child. You know, I never hesitated to pray. I prayed all the time um, because it felt like I was going to a parent that loved me and that um, that I could turn to without fear, without really fearing punishment, to be honest, more than anything else. And that I could just talk to about the inane things without being told that they were... Um, 
stupid or silly or, you know, whatever diminishing adjective you want to put in. And so my relationship with God was was a really deep friendship with a parent. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I didn't have that. <laughs> you still feel that? No. Oh, no. Yeah. That, that actually makes me sad because you, you lost something or someone that was really important to you. Yeah. I think instead of loss, what I would say, it changed. Okay. I think my needs changed. Mm. What I needed as a child was a parent, a loving parental figure. And what I now have as an adult, I feel, is a partner. Huh. And so when I pray now, I pray as if I'm praying to a partner who's right there next to me. I see. Yeah. Okay. And, and it feels like a constant presence, but it's no longer a presence um, that's needed out of suffering, actually. And yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a in a church that was filled with women who served, but it was very clear that the message was that they served men. Were you aware of any gay people or? Um, there was one man who there were jokes made about him. Mm. And there was one gentleman who never married. And when I got older, my mom did tell me when I was a teenager that he chose uh, not to be gay because it's a choice. And uh, I didn't really understand what that meant. At the time, I've had to do a lot of healing over this. I've really still carry shame over believing that, believing that it was a choice, you know. And that gentleman, I think about him often because I hope he had a life that he was able to enjoy outside of the church he was part of. I really hope that he had a secret life that was filled with love and where he could be who he was because the church that he was a part of didn't accept him and he couldn't be that person. I have also been so angry at Christianity <laughs> for so long. And, you know, the Christianity that I grew up in for making me feel less than as a woman, for making me believe that lie of, of what homosexuality is or isn't. And I've had to do a lot of real healing around it to realize that that's not mine yeah. and, and I don't want any part of it. And then also understanding because it's so deeply embedded in my parents and who they are that it means that I will be rejecting them and I will be isolated from them as a result. Um, that's been one of the, the hardest things to really heal from has been the grief of knowing that my choices and the way that I live my life, which I love, means that I am isolated from my community, you know, the community I grew up in. So it's like this constant reminder that the decisions I've made have meant that I've rejected them and... and um, the pain that comes from that, too. And that in a life, we leave home many times, right? If we continue to grow and be curious and make lives that are truly ours, we, we have to leave home over and over again. I mean, home for me is people, the people that I love. But I will say Minnesota has been such uh, an important home for me. You know, growing up in Miami, I was part of the majority. Spanish-speaking immigrants are the majority there. I didn't ever know that that was not the way that the rest of the U.S. was. And so I just, I just really didn't have an idea until I left after college and went to D.C. first for an internship at, at NPR and then went to New York that that wasn't the case. 
But even then, there were so many people from other countries in those cities that it didn't actually hit me until moving here, where the majority was, you know, white Americans who uh, were of Scandinavian German descent and had a very different way of being. But it's been such a place of learning and growth for me because of the fact that um, I had to really confront my own whiteness, what it means to be a white Colombian, something that my parents don't even have the language. Like they, they, they have a language for every other color. They got no language for white. And I think there's something about Minneapolis in particular, which is where I live. There's such an openness to the people here. But people just, when they love something, they love it deeply. They support it financially. There's such a sense of community here. And that's one of the reasons why when George Floyd was murdered, you felt the community grieving. And it was everyone. I mean, I feel very proud to to call this home in a way that, I'll be honest, I never felt about Miami. (laughs) Um, And I also just didn't ever fit in there. But yeah, I think... The redefinition of of my identity has been really helpful to me in my work because it has made me um, more open to learning. I think this has been such an awakening for me of feeling in a lot of ways closer to my Colombian heritage and and family than I did, than I had when I lived in Miami and was literally surrounded by Colombians. You, you just said something about calling yourself, naming yourself, and your identity. And so before, when I would listen to the on-being credits, you were Lily Percy. Yeah. And it's different and I think beautiful to come to this conversation and meet Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz. Mm. Talk a little bit about your different Names. Yeah, I mean, I think using my my real name, my full name, um, Liliana Maria, is actually probably as close as somebody got to bring my whole self to work. <laughs> um, and it was something that happened here, and and I'm, I'm not going to lie, it happened largely in in anger, uh, a reaction, an anger reaction to white Minnesotans assuming I was a white Minnesotan, because Lily Percy is um, not a Latin American name, right? Even though my documents here say Liliana Maria, Percy. But when I was a little girl, one of my teachers started calling me Lily. And I never questioned it. I've actually asked my brother. And he said, yeah, one day you just came home and you're like, hey, they're calling me Lily. And I was like, all right. And then we just kind of went with it. And then you just became Lily. And what I would do was save my real name for Spanish speakers. And so I would always introduce myself to someone who was from Latin America, who spoke Spanish, as Liliana Maria. And then for English speakers, I would say Lily. And what I realized I was doing was keeping these two identities separate. I'll never forget my girlfriend Rose, who's a black queer woman from Mississippi. She said, I don't think you like white people because you keep being so angry about Minnesotans thinking that you're one of them and and that you're white. And also, do you know that you're white? (laughs) And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I didn't think about this way. So there were all these realizations happening here that were really in the react in reaction to feeling a loss of my identity, of not feeling like my being a Colombian, my feeling a Latina was present. And so I talked to Krista and I said, how would you feel about 
me using my full name. And she was very supportive. And she said, of course, of course, that's that's really amazing that you've decided to do that. And I think what's happened for me at work is that it's allowed me to feel like I don't have to keep the Latina, the Colombian part of me outside. You know, I can bring that and that it's it's safe to do that. And it's okay to do that. And I do that on my own terms. And I do think it's also what's allowed me to name my whiteness. All of this reflection has allowed me to say, yes, I'm an immigrant and yes, I'm Latina, but I am white in this country and I'm white in Colombia. So I feel like being here and using my name gave me permission to start asking all of those questions about myself, about my identity. It felt so vulnerable, and it still does. It's funny you mentioned the credits because one of my colleagues here said, do you want to update the credits? Because I still say Lily Percy. And I said to him, and I still feel this way, I'm not ready yet. Hmm. It still feels like it's too much to let it into the workplace in that way. <laughs> it's interesting. I don't know why. It just does. And um, Well, I mean, if you're Lily Percy, you still get to be white. Oh, I never thought of it that way. Hmm. That's so interesting, Helga. I never thought of it that way. In my mind, I thought it's because I still have those kind of, um, I don't want to be used, like tokenized in any way and be part of a demographic, but I've never thought of it the way that you just framed it. Wow. You know, this makes me want to change my name right now. It brings up stuff for me too, right? That you get to choose. Oh, yeah. You're so right. And that there's so much privilege in that. There is. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Ouch. I wish I could give you a hug. You know what? I, I, I wouldn't let you. Because in part what happens when we hug, then there's something about you seeing the effect of that on me without trying to fix it, without trying to make me <laughs> or yourself feel better. Feel better. Yeah. Mm. Is where the medicine is. Mm. Yeah. Liliana Maria, muchas gracias y mucho cariño. Ay, gracias, querida. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz. I'm Helga Davis. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and share with a friend. And don't forget to follow me at hel.gadavis on Instagram. Helga, The Armory Conversations is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Park Avenue Armory. The show is produced by Crystal Hawes Dressler with help from Darian Suggs and myself. Our technical producer is Sapir Rosenblatt. Original music by Michelle Endege Ocello and Jason Moran. Special thanks to Alex Ambrose. Avery Willis Hoffman is our executive producer. City and Bloomberg Philanthropies are the Armory's 2021 season sponsors. And now, the coda. My parents are from the West Indies. And when they came here, 
they had to go to England first because their islands are British colonies. And she met Helga from Hamburg in London. And she promised Helga that she would name her first daughter Helga. And so I'm Helga. And then there's all the fun of being called Helga because when people say Helga, no one is ever, ever looking for me. What's interesting about the show being called Helga is that I was in one of those rooms where there was that board and the, with the markers and there were lots of names on that board. And finally, towards the end of the meeting, someone said, well, you know, at the end of the day, we could just call it Helga. I had to really pay attention to my body. That is the thing that makes sense to me. That I can get behind. That I can defend in any room, to anyone, in any conversation. 